0: When I had the opportunity to to go to Israel, and one of the more fascinating places that I had the pleasure of visiting was on the top of Mount Carmel. You can go up to the top, and of course, that's where Elijah prayed and God rained down fire from heaven. And at the top of Mount Carmel, there's a larger-than-life statue of Elijah. And he has a sword in one hand, and he has a prophet of Baal at his feet. And you remember that he slew the 450 prophets of Baal uh, down at the Brook Kishon. But from Mount Carmel, the view is spectacular. You can look over to the northwest, and in the distance you can see Mount Hermon with snow. It was kind of hazy on that day, but we could still see it. And you look down to the southeast, you see the Kishon Brook, and then this broad plain out in- into the distance. It's the Jezreel Valley, the Jezreel Valley. And in the Jezreel Valley below, you can see in the distance a large airfield. It's the the landing strip for the Israeli Air Force. And you look down to the southwest a little bit, and there's this little town of Megiddo sitting on a smaller hill. A hill. In Hebrew, the word hill is Har. It's Har Megiddo in Hebrew. Hill of Megiddo. Does that sound familiar? In the book of Revelation, it's translated Armageddon. Armageddon. Har-Megiddo. I was looking down upon the plain of the place that will be the final battle on earth. When the nations come together against the Lord Jesus Christ at Har-Megiddo. And that's there complete today with Israeli Air Force. And since Israel is surrounded by hostile Arab nations, jet aircraft patrol its borders at all times, but an F-16 jet can only fly three and a half minutes and stay in the border of Israel. Israel is 85 miles wide, its widest points, only 275 miles long, roughly the size and the shape of New Jersey. So what is it about this tiny, tiny nation, historically and even now, that makes it incur the wrath and the hatred of the peoples, most of the peoples of the world. And to answer that question, we need to look at Israel's past. And in doing so, we're going to see why its Arab neighbors in the Muslim world are intent in wiping Israel off the face of the earth. We'll see the reason for the Nazi Holocaust, the reason for the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center, And the attack on the Pentagon, the reason for Islamic terrorism and jihad, the reason for the Six Day War in Israel in 1967 when Israel's neighbors attacked with the intent of totally destroying it. And we'll see the reason for what is called the Palestinian problem today and why most of the nations of the world and the UN at large side with the Palestinians. And refer to the west bank of the Jordan River and Jerusalem as occupied territories, occupied by, by Israel. And to do that, we go back to Genesis. The word Genesis means beginning. In the beginning, God. We go back to the beginning of God's covenant people. And so we go, or we begin with Abraham. Abraham or Abram as he's called, in Genesis chapter 12, the 12th chapter of of Genesis, the first verse. In the 12th chapter of Genesis, we see God's initial call to Abram when God called him to leave a place called Ur of the Chaldees. In chapter 12 of Genesis, the first verse, this is God's calling and his promise to Abraham, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Abram, he was called Abram then. Well, If I say Abram or Abraham, I'm still referring to the same person. Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So at age 75, Abram went into the land of Canaan as God had directed him to do so. But there was a famine in the land of Canaan. And even though God had promised to take care of Abram and his family and bless him, make him a great nation, rather than trusting God, Abram and Sarah, his wife, headed down to Egypt where there's no famine. Abram was out of the will of God, and that's when the problem began. You might remember, to protect himself, Abram lied about his beautiful wife Sarai and told everyone, she's my sister. And you had that whole ugly mess when Pharaoh kicked them out of Egypt. And so we skip a few years and a few chapters, and we go to chapter 16 of Genesis. Genesis chapter 16, the first verse. In the chapter just before chapter 16 here, God made a covenant with Abram, and God had promised Abram, "To your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates." And in a nutshell, that includes all the promised land that we consider the promised land, as well as many of the territories that now are occupied by the Arab nations. Everything from the Nile River to the Euphrates River in Babylon. God promised this whole region to the descendants of Abram. So we got the Sinai, we got Lebanon, we got Jordan, Syria, the tip of Saudi Arabia, and half of Iraq. We normally don't think of that as as the promised land, do we? They will be populated by the descendants of Abram. So what's the problem? Verse 1 of Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, and he had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. When Abraham, or Abram and Sarai left Egypt, they did not leave alone. Abram had compounded his problem because while he was in Egypt, he had taken on a servant, an Egyptian woman, by the name of Hagar. And so when he went back into the land of Canaan, he took his handmaid, Hagar, When Abram was given the promises of God of a seed, he disbelieved that God could produce that seed through his wife, Sarai. She was barren. She was in her 90s. Abraham didn't have the faith at that point. And so he went under the advice of Sarai into Hagar, this Egyptian maid that he'd picked up in Egypt, while disobedient to God, while they were living in Egypt. And out of the loins of Abram, born through Hagar, came a child by the name of Ishmael. Ishmael, you've probably heard that. But Ishmael was not the child of promise. Ishmael was not the covenant child. Ishmael was not the son through whom God would bring out his Jewish people and his Messiah and his plan of redemption. So after Isaac is born, and at this point, there was the time when God changed their name to Abraham and Sarah. After the covenant child was born, Isaac, and he grew and he was weaned, Sarah, his mother, saw Ishmael playing with baby Isaac. And the Hebrew word for playing here implies that Ishmael, the older son, was making fun of Isaac, the younger son. He was mocking Isaac. And so Sarah is greatly upset at this point. And we find this over in Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21, the the 10th verse. Sarah's really upset that Ishmael, this son born of Hagar, was making fun of of her toddler son, Isaac. And she said, verse 10, Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son, Isaac. The conflict has been set up. And why was the conflict set up? Because Abraham was disobedient to God when he left Canaan, the conflict had been set up because Abraham was disobedient and lied to Pharaoh because he was thrown out of the land of Egypt. And he took with him an Egyptian handmaid, got that Egyptian handmaid pregnant, trying to help God in the flesh, trying to produce God's promise himself. And Abraham produced an Ishmael. And then when God gave him Isaac, the conflict continued. Because Ishmael was actually Abraham's older son. Abraham set up a conflict that still goes on to this day. Now the promise of Genesis chapter 7 verse 20 was out of the loins of Ishmael would come a great people. And we find that, we're turning today in uh, Genesis chapter 17 verse 20. Because God did make a promise concerning Ishmael. And the Lord said in verse 20 of Genesis chapter 17. But as for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I will bless him, will make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. He will become the father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But, verse 21, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac. I'm going to bless and make Ishmael a great nation, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac. Now, this is key. Ishmael would produce a great people, the Arab people, but not the covenant people. A great people, but not the covenant people. And it's important that we understand this. In fact, in both Genesis chapter 16 and 17, if we read that, clearly indicated to us that Ishmael was not the covenant people. Or the people that Ishmael would, would come from him. But they would become the persecutor of the covenant people. The persecutor of the covenant people. Uh, Genesis chapter 16, verse 12. Says of Ishmael, the father of the Arab people. Genesis 16, verse 12. This is his quality. These this are his characteristics. Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of all his brothers. I can think of no better biblical commentary considering the Islamic and Arab people today, the countries, not everybody that's Arab, not everybody that's this way, but, but in the same way that Israel as a whole has rejected God or as a nation, there's no better commentary concerning the Islamic religion. They will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against them. And then there's Esau. There's still more in Genesis. Later on in the patriarchal line, there were two sons born to Isaac by the names of Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the son of promise, but Esau was not, even though Esau was born first, and his name means red, Esau. He was a red, hairy baby of all things. And uh, he was born first. He should have been the son of promise, but he was not. And, and so out of Esau's loins came a people called the Edomites. Edomites, In fact, both Edomite, Edom and Esau are words that mean red. And so they're, they're related to there. And they are also, from them have also come the people that we know today as the Arab people. The Arab people. And it's interesting, in chapter 36 of Genesis, in the third verse, Genesis chapter 36, verse 3, it lists Esau's wives. Verse 3 of of chapter 36 of Genesis lists a wife of Esau by the name of Basimoth. And who is she? Verse 3, also Basimoth, Ishmael's daughter. Esau did not marry from the descendants of Isaac. He married Ishmael's daughter. So Ishmael or, or Esau married in the line of Ishmael, not into the line of the children of promise. And this great people came, became and still are the antagonist of the people of the promise. They are the haters and the persecutors of the people of God, the nation of Israel. And Ishmael's children and Esau's children joined together to persecute the seed of Isaac. And that has been true century after century after century, and is still true today. So Israel lives in an imminent threat of Arab invasion. And it doesn't matter what kind of treaties exist or what kind of promises are made, these mean nothing. I always think of something that uh, John MacArthur asked one time. He says, how many treaties have been broken in history. And then he pauses and says, All of them. All of them. Because if they decide it's a holy war, if they decide it's a jihad, they want to take what they believe is theirs, and all treaties are null and void. It's never been solely about land, it has never been about peace. It's always been about a hatred toward and the annihilation of the people of Israel. Ishmael and Esau want what God gave to Israel. So one more passage from the Old Testament before we go to Romans chapter 11. Turn over to the 83rd Psalm. Psalm 83 at verse 1. Psalm 83 is a psalm of Asaph. He was one of the song leaders in the temple, as near as we can tell. And he wrote a lot of the Psalms. And in this Psalm 83, he's imploring God to confound the enemies of God who are also his enemies. And it's interesting to see who these enemies are because he's going to list them. It's interesting to see what they want to do. And what was true in Asaph's day, we see is still true today. Verse 1 of Psalm 83 Asaph is praying. O God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent. And O God, do not be still. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. And those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. The treasured ones are God's people. God's people God's people. And what is their goal? What do they want to do? See if this sounds familiar. Verse 4. They have said, Come and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. What are the chants in Muslim countries today? Death to Israel and death to America. In grade school, in grammar school, the kids are taught to to shout that as a a way of life. Verse 5, For they have conspired together with one mind. Against you they make a covenant. They make an agreement together. And then it says in verse 6, These are from the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites. Does that sound familiar? There they are again. Moab and the Hagrites, Gebal and Ammon. We have Amman Jordan today, that part of the world. Amalek. Philistia with the inhabitants of, of Tyre. All of these are, are Arab nations and Muslim nations today. And, and uh, Philistia, where you see that in the Latin, it's Palestinia. Palestinia. When Hadrian, the emperor in the, the early second century, finally pretty much wiped out or sent out all the Jews out of, out of Israel at that time, he named that area, he gave that area a name that would be an affront to every Jew. He called it in the Greek Philistia, in the Hebrew he called it, or in the Latin he called it Palestina, Palestine. But all of these people that are listed here, we know as the Arab people and the Islamic people today. And you add to that list the Nazis and the Russians and the Communists and the Spanish Inquisition, on and on through history. The point is that for 3,000 years, other nations have been trying to wipe out the Jews. And if you want proof for the inspiration of Scripture, the truth of God's Scripture, all you have to do is look at the Jews. For almost 2,000 years, they have been exiled from their home country, and they've been in countries clear out through the world. They've had no homeland of their own, no homeland from A.D. 70 until May of 1948. Yet they have maintained their culture, their religion, their identity in every country in which they have lived. No one can and never will wipe them out. Why not? Because God keeps his promises and has not rejected his people. Romans chapter 11, verse 1. Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. God has not rejected his people. Even though ethnic Israel as a nation has rejected God, God has not rejected them. God has always preserved. He's always kept a remnant. The hardening of his old covenant people is partial that we've seen in Romans chapter 11, and it's temporary. It's only most of them, but not all of them. It's partial, and it's only for a time that they have been set aside. So look at chapter 11 of Romans, uh, the 25th verse. This is one of those places where Paul tells us a mystery. A mystery in in the Bible is a truth that was part of God's plan from the very beginning, but now has been revealed to us. And verse 25 of Romans chapter 11 says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. And here is the mystery. First of all, the hardening of God's people is partial. God has a remnant. It's not all of Israel. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel. And it's only temporary. Temporary until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When God has saved and called to himself all the elect of the Gentiles, then God is going to turn once again to Israel, So in verses 11 through 12 that we read as part of our text this morning, Romans chapter 11. Beginning with verse 11, Paul begins to open up to us this mystery. This thing that was part of God's plan from all beginning, from the foundation of the world. He is, uh, he is going to now open up this ministry. And so he says in verse 11, I say then, did they stumble as to fall? As to fall, did they? May it never be. And the question is this, has ethnic Israel, Abraham's family according to the flesh, his physical descendants, stumbled over Christ, over the stumbling block, to the point that they permanently have fallen? They've fallen and can't get up. They're fallen and they're totally lost. Is it a permanent falling? And of course, Paul says, may it never be. But the reason he says that is because the verb to fall here means to fall in a situation that you can never get back up again. It's one thing to stumble. It's one thing to pass out and get oneself back up again, maybe with the help of EMTs and your wife's prayer. I know something about these things. It's something else to hit with such a crash that you're totally debilitated. It can never get back up again. Did Israel fall in order that they would never be able to come back again? Is their stumbling complete? Is their stumbling irreversible? Is it a permanent falling from which no recovery is ever possible? Is natural Israel dead? Are they never to receive the promises of God? And Paul says, may it never be. May geneta, no, no, never The strongest negative in the Greek language. Indeed, Paul is going to say that their temporary stumbling is actually part of God's larger purpose and plan. It was part of God's plan all along to work this way. That's the mystery. And so Paul says that by their stumbling, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Okay, how many of you here are Gentiles this morning? How many of you got at least some Jewish blood? (laughs) we got a couple yeah and so he says in verse 11 i say then they did not stumble so as to fall did they may it never be but by their transgression salvation has come to the gentiles to make them jealous this is really good Through Israel's trespass, through their transgression, through their stumbling over the stumbling block of Jesus Christ, rejecting Christ, God opened the door to the Gentiles. To the Gentiles. When ethnic Israel rejected Jesus Christ, God opened the door to those of us who are Gentiles. But then through the salvation of the Gentiles, salvation will come also to Israel who will be provoked to jealousy by the Gentiles' joy and blessing in Christ. So this is a very important thing to understand. God uses the salvation of the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy. It's an infinity with a preposition, which means it indicates purpose, the why, the reason. The purpose of Israel's stumbling was so that the Gentiles would be saved. And the Jews, in seeing the blessedness of being saved among the Gentiles would be drawn by jealousy or envy. It speaks of a desire to emulate, a desire to imitate, a desire to possess what the Gentiles possessed when they are blessed by God. And therefore, they would come to salvation. And so the word jealousy here is used in a positive sense. It has to do with admiration or emulation or striving after. In other words, some in Israel, not all, the remnant, not all, But a remnant of Jews would see the Gentile church and they would be drawn when they see how blessed the Gentile church is. And they would be drawn when they see what it really means to know Christ and how the redeemed have been so enriched and privileged and they would look at themselves and say, look what we've missed. Look what we have lost. Look at what we have forfeited. And by saying the glory of God given to the Gentile church, they would be drawn to Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting that it's not only the gospel message that draws a Jew to Christ, but it's the gospel message as it's lived out in the richness and the blessing and the joy of those who know Christ. There are many Jews who are drawn to Christ through the testimony of a Gentile believer. But isn't that also true about those who are pagan or atheist? They are drawn because they look at us and they see what we have, who we have in Jesus Christ, and see the blessings and see the fellowship that we have. And so God has temporarily set aside the Jews as a nation, a a partial hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, that is, until all the Gentiles God has elected and going to save have been saved, And then in verse 26 of Romans chapter 11, it says, Then all Israel will be saved. So in verse 12, Paul gives us a preview of that fullness of when all Israel will be saved. He says in verse 12 of chapter 11, Now if their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Paul here is just putting in one little simple phrase what he's going to really expand upon in the rest of of chapter 11. How much more will their fulfillment be? So it's kind of like, wait, there's more. For if Israel's trespass means redemptive riches for the Gentiles, then just think what that fullness will be, the incorporation of the full number of elect Jews into the New Covenant Church, what that might mean. And in a moment, Paul's going to tell us more of what that means in verse 15, but here only two verses into when He starts to talk a little bit about the mystery that he's going to explain in this full chapter. We're already getting a good feel for the gist of the mystery. God is not done with ethnic Israel. Rather, he has something great in store for his Old Testament people. Something that will herald the end of the age. That will herald the end of the age and the advent of the world to come when we all get to heaven, what a glory that will be that we sang about this morning. This is talking about that glorious time in the world to come when all the elect of the Gentiles and all the elect of the Jews will come into the fullness of the riches that God has for us in Christ Jesus. Everything that God has in store for us in Christ our Lord. And in verses 13 and 14 here in this 11th chapter, Paul pauses to let his Gentile audience in on a little bit of a strategic secret about his evangelistic ministry little parentheses here in verse 13 but i am speaking to you who are gentiles inasmuch then i am an apostle of the gentiles i might magnify my ministry if somehow i might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them whenever paul ministered to the gentiles ministers christ to the gentiles the non-jews to whom he was specifically called. And we read about that calling in Acts chapter 26. Whenever he ministers to the Gentiles, he makes every effort to magnify or show off the blessings and joy of his converts. If by any means he might provoke some of his Jewish kinsmen to jealousy, so that they too will desire Christ and be saved. In other words, when Paul ministers the gospel to the Gentiles, he still has the Jews in mind. He still has his countrymen, his kinsmen in mind. And he consciously aligns himself with the purpose and plan of God to provoke his fellow countrymen to jealousy. God's purpose in the trespass of Israel, the falling of Israel, is salvation for the Gentiles. And his purpose for the salvation of the Gentiles is to make Israel jealous. So that she wakens to the greatness of Christ and embraces her Messiah. And then he adds the purpose of the salvation of all Israel. He calls it their their full inclusion, their, their fulfillment. It's something greater. Something glorious follows the full number of Gentiles and the full number of Israel. And verse 15 says what it is. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, they rejected, God turned to the Gentiles, the world, and they were reconciled to God. What will their acceptance be? They rejected, and we know all that did, all what that did, but what will their acceptance be? And then Paul uses a really great phrase here. But their acceptance will be life from the dead. If by their rejection the gospel went to the Gentiles and there's a partial hardening of the Jews until the time of the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, when all the elect Gentiles have been, a sa- have been saved, then why will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Life from the dead. Now, life from the dead is something really good, isn't it? <laughs> it's something really great. It's something that Paul wants, and it's something whose time he desires to hasten, but what exactly is it? In the verses ahead and the rest of the chapter, Paul's going to answer that in depth, and there will be learn that ethnic Israel's latter-day return to God, that is, in the last days, Israel will return to the faith of their father, Abraham, which is none other than faith in Jesus Christ a faith that secures entrance into the new covenant. Israel's latter-day return will mark the completion of God's redemptive ingathering. gathering It will mark the attaining of the full number of elect Jews and the full number of elect Gentiles, the completion and the fullness of the body of Christ, one church, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one spirit, one body one hope and one God and Father of all who is Lord over all and in all. But what exactly will happen when that fullness is reached? It is this, the high King of heaven and the one shepherd, Jesus Christ, whom the Father appointed to gather his flock as already told us, Jesus said, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And he said to his disciples, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So then, for Jesus, the completion of the evangelistic ministry of the church brings the end. The consummation. And for Paul, the completion of that same ministry, which is marked by a final ingathering of ethnic Israel at large, brings life from the dead. Israel's fullness and acceptance will trigger the climactic end of salvation history. God is not done with Israel. Their acceptance of Jesus Christ will trigger the culmination of the church's evangelistic ministry. And Israel will will turn from its unbelief. They will embrace the gospel of salvation by faith, as well described, resurrection. Paul calls it life from the dead. So I want to close by reading about this life from the dead of Israel from the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 37, beginning at the first verse. And you'll recognize this as what's called the vision of the dry bones. 37th chapter of Ezekiel, verse 1. If there's no better biblical description of the Arab people today than being against everyone and everyone against them, there's no better biblical description of Israel, what's going on today, than Ezekiel chapter 37. We see God doing this, doing this in our time. Chapter 1 and verse 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were many, very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter that you may come to life, life from the dead. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life. And I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your promises both to your old covenant people and to us as your new covenant people. Father, and we thank you that you are actively working, and and we can even see it in in the news reports today of what's going on in Israel, Lord, that uh, you are working through your Holy Spirit to brave life, to bring life from death, even among your old covenant people, Israel. Father, we also recognize that these times are turbulent times. They are horrible times. There's coming a time of of great tribulation. But, Father, we thank you that even in the midst of great tribulation, you are still God. You are still at work. You are still faithful. And you are still bringing about your great promises and your plans. And we look forward today when we all get to heaven, what a glory that will be. One people, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body, one God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.